Good morning. We are looking at a man who's hard to explain. His name is Hezekiah, and you're going to find him in Second Chronicles chapter 30. And the reason why he's so hard to explain is because, well, his father, his father walked contrary to God's will. I mean, he did everything possible to turn the Judaite people away from God. Hezekiah, on the other hand, who had been raised by his father and frankly co-regent with his father for 13 years, walked in the ways of the Lord and basically undid all the spiritual devastation that his father attempted to produce within the land of Judah. How do you explain two generations so difficult and so challenging to be able to understand as these two? What's even more fascinating is that Hezekiah's father, Ahaz, who did not walk with the Lord, is matched by Hezekiah's son, Manasseh, who did not walk with the Lord. So here we find three generations, but in the middle, here is a man who truly was committed to the Lord. How do you explain this? God's grace. God's grace reached right in, and what you and I find in Second Chronicles, really from chapter 29 through 32, is a tremendous example of how when everything ought not to be good, God does something good. And so if you're looking this morning at circumstances, and maybe your own personal background, and you've gone through and was raised in some very difficult, challenging times, and you've come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, well, then you've got an example here in Hezekiah, a man who was determined to do it God's way. And God's way is what is developed here for us in this 30th chapter. So you found your way, Lord willing, now to Second Chronicles as we continue on this study. began in January, we'll end at the end of August. And in chapter 30, we're going to begin in verse 1, and I'm going to read it simply up to verse 12. And in fact, to even simplify, I'll begin in verse 6 and lead it up to verse 12 to give us a sampler of what we're covering this morning. Because in verse 6 now, Hezekiah has sent out these couriers into the land, and he's challenged the remnant of the people in the north, those left behind when the Assyrians swept in and, and removed the, the ten tribes of the north into captivity. He speaks to them, and of course, Judah in the south, with these words. At the king's command, couriers went throughout Israel and Judah with letters from the king and from his officials. And notice how it reads. People of Israel, return to the Lord. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that he may return to you, you who are left, who have escaped from the hand of the kings of Assyria. Do not be like your fathers and brothers who were unfaithful to the Lord, the God of their fathers, so that he made them an object of horror, as you see. Do not be stiff-necked as your fathers were. Submit to the Lord. Come to the sanctuary, which he's consecrated forever. Serve the Lord your God so that his fierce anger will turn away from you. If you return to the Lord, then your brothers and your children will be shown compassion by their captors and will come back to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and compassionate. 
He will not turn his face from you if you return to him. Isn't that beautiful? Well, the couriers went from town to town in Ephraim and Manasseh as far as Zebulun. But the people scorned and ridiculed them. Nevertheless, some men of Ash and Manasseh and Zebulun humbled themselves, went to Jerusalem. And also in Judah, the hand of God was on the people to give them unity of mind. To carry out what the king and his officials had ordered. Following the word of the Lord. We're going to be talking this morning about turning points, and asking in particular, have you experienced that critical turning point in your life where you turned away from the things contrary to God and have deliberately, by God's grace, turned to God through Jesus? Let's look to our Lord in prayer. Our fathers, we're coming before you now. We're coming before you as people who, if we're going to be honest with ourselves and certainly honest before you, are sinful by nature. The Bible teaches it and experience demonstrates it. And left to our own, there would be absolutely no way to be able to bridge the gap between us and you. But Jesus came along. There was a reason he was born of a virgin, because we needed a sinless sacrifice. We needed a dual nature, 100% God, 100% man. Two natures in this one person. Humanity, of course, because we deserve the penalty of sin, which is death. Deity, of course, because it would take a sinless one who would be able to be the perfect sacrifice, taking our penalty so that we might be able to experience true freedom and salvation. So our eyes are focused upon you. So, Lord, what we're doing now, what we're doing now is we are humbly placing ourselves before your authority under your word, by your spirit. We're praying, Lord, that you warm again these hearts of ours. We're praying that you will take these minds of ours and fully engage them, fill them with truth. Take these wills now and align them with your word. Because again, now, Father, we've come here to see Jesus. Him only. We're praying these things still again now in in Jesus' name. Amen. Look at what appears on the screen. It's a scene that should capture your attention and mine. And the man that you see here to your left is a plaque. It's a memorial to Jonathan Edwards, the great pastor in New England in the 1930s and the 40s who was pivotal in the way in which God provided and produced revival prior to the Revolutionary War. To the right is his congregation. Some of them 
so stirred by the Holy Spirit because God was doing a great work in the colonies leading up to the Revolutionary War. My wife and I have stood before this plaque when we were visiting Northampton. And underneath that plaque is the words that probably are a little difficult for us to see. The law of truth was in his mouth. And unrighteousness was not found in his lips. He walked with me. Now quoting from Malachi 2.6, God is saying this. He walked with me in peace and righteousness and did turn many away from iniquity. So said of Jonathan Edwards and should be said of us as well. But what we find here now is a visual example once again of what God does in great awakenings, stirrings of the Spirit, what we might call revival. Revival is not something that you can program. Revival is not something that you can politicize. Revival is not something that you can, in three weeks in advance, put up on a plaque and say, we're going to have revival services, the days, the nights of. No. Revival is of God, by God, for God. And what he has done for us is he has set for us the main elements of revival found in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. Jonathan Edwards followed those principles, as did Whitfield and Wesley, and the result was the colonies were blessed. Similar principles were experienced in the Second Great Awakening, leading into the Civil War. And what fascinates me is that the First Great Awakening and the Second Great Awakening preceded war and hard times in the nation. But they were tremendous means of preparation to bring people together. Because while the people were divided politically, God was already uniting people spiritually. He does that today as well, through people like those walking up to the meeting house where worship would be held. And people like in the day of Hezekiah as well. Again, how do you understand Hezekiah? How do you explain Hezekiah? It's all of grace. All of grace. Doesn't have anything to do with parenting here. God plucks this man out of the ash heap, and he is a shining example of redemption, shining example of God sovereignly working, because his father Ahaz, well, to get a sense of Ahaz, flip back with me to chapter 28. I'll just read a few verses, and you're going to get a sense of the depravity in the land at that particular time. This is what Hezekiah had grown up in. In verse 1 of chapter 28, Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. And unlike David, his father, speaking of generations back, that ancestor, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel also made cast idols for worshiping the Baals. He turned sacrifices, he burned sacrifices in the valley of uh, Ben-Himnon and sacrificed his sons in the fire. We have lost all sense of respect for life here. 
And when a culture loses a sense of the reverence of God, it loses then the respect for human life. The vertical shapes the horizontal. The reverence for God reinstills a sense of the sanctity of human life. But when the reverence for God is removed from the culture, the sanctity of life declines within the culture. And then a nation's vulnerable. So much so that you and I would read in verse 5 that the Lord his God handed him over. That is a direct handover, sovereign handover, God does, to the king of Aram. Aram, that's Syria. Now last week we noticed how the people in the north were dependent upon Egypt. So here now the people of the south are dependent upon Syria. And all you and I need to do now is to continuously examine the Middle East and ponder what is taking place in both Egypt and Syria and examine very carefully the challenges of the hour for Israel as well. It's deja vu, as Yogi Berra said, all over again here. And so now here we find that the Lord his God handed him over to the king of Aram. The Arameans defeated him, took many of his people as prisoners, and brought them to Damascus, where Assad today has been ruling the people of Syria. So now, with all of this in the background, Hezekiah is plucked out of the ash heap of depravity, and by God's sovereign grace, positions him now to make an impact for God's glory. Revival is about to break out. So I want you to be thinking about this scene that's unfolding here in the 1930s and 40s in Northampton, Massachusetts. Transfer back to what's happening in Hezekiah's experience in chapter 30 and then launch it forward to 2013 living as we dig in. Notice now in verse, chapter 30, verse 1, that Hezekiah sent word. He sent word to all Israel and Judah. In other words, the people to the north that were still around after the Assyrians had conquered and taken all their relatives captive to another place and setting. And he wrote letters to Ephraim and Manasseh, inviting them to come to Jerusalem. He invited them to come to the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem and celebrate the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel. This was a long-forgotten celebration. The Israelites were no longer doing this. It had simply slipped from the memory of the people. The value there is in the sacrificial lamb that would serve as the substitute for that individual. And now what Hezekiah is doing is that he's taking them back to the historical truths of what God had established for his people We're looking back at a little history here. Hezekiah is looking back at a little history here. And now what he does is he draws out for them the challenges that are necessary to be right before God. What we want to do in this passage of Scripture this morning is to draw out three major distinctives in this chapter pertaining to revival. And the first is going to be developed like this out of verses 1 through 12. That during times of true revival, God's people return to the Lord. And I emphasize return with the word turn found there as well. Because in verse 6, 7, 8, and 9, 
you and I are going to be able to seize the passage and recognize the repetition of that word. Again and again and again. What Hezekiah is now doing is saying, first things first, before I deal with the military matters, before I deal with the international matters, before I deal with the threat of Assyria, I want to deal with the heart of the person. And so here is this king who refuses to politicize his own spirituality, but now brings out the word of the Lord. And I want you to notice each of the phrases, each of the phrases that speaks of the tremendous emphasis to be placed upon the whole aspect of returning to God. Look carefully at verse 6, where in the very heart of it he begins, People of Israel... Return to the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Stop right there. What he has done now is he has gotten the people to refocus. If you're a parent this morning, one of your primary responsibilities is to get the family to focus, and if necessary, refocus. If there is some way, shape, or form, some kind of focal movement away from the primary object of our faith, Jesus Christ. It's time now to direct people back to our Redeemer. And so now here is this man who is leading this nation, who's got this tremendous baggage behind him and the way his father had run things contrary to God's word. And he's saying, okay, it's a new beginning. I don't care how I was raised. I'm going to put my faith and trust in my God to raise up his people for his glory. So he says, people of Israel, and by saying that, not merely people of Judah, he's not reaching out to the remnant there, to the north, who were not swept away by the Assyrians. Return to the Lord, Yahweh, the covenantal name for God. And then notice what he does. To really make a connection, and you really want to make a connection in 2013 culture, for him, he says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. And now the people of the north, who have been so far removed from the idea of the will of the God and the word of God, as well as the people of Judah, who have lived under the oppressive regime of Ahaz, are hearing him take them back to their forefathers and thinking about what God had said to Abraham and to Isaac. And notice he uses the name Israel, not Jacob. This is relevant. He wants to connect with people. And we need to be able to connect with people in today's culture as well. There's a second return. People of Israel return to the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Here's the second one. That he may return to you who are left. In other words, now they're thinking, my word, by God's grace, we're still here. We're here for a reason. By God's grace, we were not swept away into the Assyrian culture and assimilated. Instead, we're here, and now what you've got to get people to begin to ask, why am I here? What's my purpose for living? What's the meaning of life? Why am I breathing in 2013 anyways? And where am I heading? And where is this world heading? 
notice what he's doing here. He, he is so relevant that he is able to say, return to you who are left. He knows what's in the news. And all of them know what happened just north as the Assyrians swept away their brothers and sisters, their relatives, their cousins into a foreign land. So you who've escaped from the hand of the kings of Assyria, there's the second challenge to return. That he may return to you who are left. Now when you get the reading that he may return to you, we're talking now about the sense of God's presence. That God would return to you. And if you feel as though somewhere along the way you took a detour in life's spiritual pilgrimage, what God is saying, you're going to feel an absence of my presence. You're going to feel a diminished sense of my presence. You're going to feel as though you are achingly journeying alone in this fallen world. And I want to be your traveling companion. You ever felt that way? Amy Carmichael ministered in India. She was impressed by the great Ulster revival of 1859 and was praying for something powerful and similar to take place in the region which she, as a single woman, was ministering to all of these uh, children who had been sold into prostitution. And she was involved in delivering them from this. On October 22nd, to quote one of the children, Jesus came to Donafor. He was here before, but on that day he came in so vivid a fashion that we cannot wonder that it struck this particular child as a new coming. Now what she is saying is exactly what Hezekiah now is communicating. Return to the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that he may return to you, your second return found in these verses. A third? Well, now you've got to jump into verse 9. If you return to the Lord, then your brothers and your children will be shown compassion by their captors and will come back to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and compassionate. The third return found in verse 9 informs you and informs me that there are going to be benefits to others if we return to the Lord. If we are so centered on God's will, God's way, God's Son, and committed to Him exclusively, not our way, our will, our desires, and our preferences, others are going to be blessed. They may not even know why they're being blessed, but you are the carrier. You are the transmitter of the blessing. Not only are you experiencing the blessing, you are the carrier of the blessing in the workplace, in the school, in the community, in the neighborhood, in the nation. And yet there's more here. There's a fourth return. Keep reading in verse 9. He will not turn his face from you if you... Fifthly, return to Him. Ever feel as though somebody was indifferent? And you are walking in their way, and it seems as though they see you coming out of the corner of the eye, but they turn the head. 
and you feel like you've got to stop dead in your tracks and maybe pick up on a different conversation and there's this, and there's this form of relational awkwardness, maybe because of pain and a prior decision involved in a relationship. Well, there is pain in Judah because of the prior relationship with God under the leadership of Ahaz. And there's this worrisome factor, will God turn His face away from or turn His face toward? And how will God's people respond? There are five returns found in verse 6, 7, 8, and 9. And where does He get this idea, this teaching? You and I know. You and I know. Look what appears on the screen. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and what? Turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Last week, we saw the negative example. Ten tribes to the north refused, according to 2 Kings 17.13, to turn from their ways, and so they were swept away into captivity. Now the question of the hours, the people of the south, people of Judah, will they turn away from their sin, turn back to the Lord to experience the blessings of having God's face shine directly upon them? It's the whole idea of the turn. When we were church planting in outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, the suburbs of Pittsburgh, my family lived on a cul-de-sac. And we were tucked back in in the very, very far corner of the cul-de-sac, you see. Now what was interesting is it was a very complex cul-de-sac. There are a lot of houses in the cul-de-sac what was interesting about it is that there was only one road that led in and spawned off all kinds of roads in the cul-de-sac. Therefore, there was only one road to get out. And inevitably, on a Tuesday during the summers, I'd be out cutting the lawn or something, working outdoors, planting trees, whatever. And I'd have sleeves rolled up, jeans dirty to the core, and here would come somebody... It was inevitable, gradually inching towards the curb, slowing down, rolling down the window, poking the head on, saying, how do you get out of here? I'm confused. To which I tell them, there is only one way in. The way out was the way in. You've got to go back. You've got to go back. Have you refused to go back to your Lord? You see, what we see here in this culture of 2013 is what I will call a spiritual cul-de-sac of confusion. Where people have entered in to this maze of roads and side roads, and they are expending countless amounts of energy and time, 
And they're trying to figure out how I got here. What's the purpose of all this? And how do I get out of here? And they're regretting all the various decisions over the course of time in the cul-de-sac experience of confusion. What we've got to do is to position ourselves at the curbs of life and be able to explain to them how to get out. To understand the one who is the way, the truth, the life. And that nobody comes to the Father except through Him and Him alone, you see. It's an exclusive truth. It's a one-road process. But it eliminates the confusion of the cul-de-sac of life. This is what Hezekiah brings to the table. And man, his father led them astray. And how do you explain this other than the grace of God? He plucks Hezekiah up for such a time as this and now brings a turning point experience to the confusion of the people. During times of true revival, God's people returned to the Lord Five times the Hebrew word shuv, transliterated S-H-U-V from the Hebrew, appears in verse 6 and 9. And it's corresponding to what you and I find in 2 Chronicles 7.14. They turn, you see, from their wicked ways. Now, once we have grasped this distinctive, then we're ready for a second distinctive. The number two, during times of true revival... God's people reunify before the Lord. Now we need a running start on this one in 13 through 20, so we'll do that. We'll pick it up in verse 12 and then leap in. Because in verse 12, also in Judah, the hand of God was on the people to give them unity of mind. Not uniformity of mind. Unity of mind. There's a difference between unity and uniformity. Uniformity comes from pressure from without. Unity comes from the person from within. Authentic Christianity is not based upon external uniformity. It's driven by that sense of the internal unity. The person Not the power from without, the person from within. The working of the Holy Spirit. And now what God is doing in an operative way in this nation and in the people there is that he's creating a sense of the unified mindset of the people. Now a nation that gets continuously fragmented and splintered culturally and politically needs to understand that the spiritual shapes the cultural and the cultural shapes the political. So you get back to what I call first things. And when people are watching and observing and they're wondering why the fragmentation. Early around five this morning, I was noticing on a particular website that there are a group of citizens in Colorado that want to start a 51st state called North Colorado. And my mind goes now to verses 12 and then onward into 13. We're working off now of first principles. And so, where there is authentic revival, it leads to authentic reunification. Ever dread some family gatherings? 
during the holidays because people don't share common values, common beliefs, and the likes, and so it's a false fit. So you try to create a temporal sense of uniformity because there's not that internal sense of true unity. We should not settle for anything less than the workings of the Holy Spirit in our lives, our church, our county, our nation. So you pick it up now in verse 13 and something new has happened. They can't believe this because not in recent memory had anything like this occurred. A very large crowd of people in 13 assembled in Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread in the second month. They removed the altars in Jerusalem and cleared away the incense altars and threw them into the Kidron Valley. What's fascinating is that these were the altars to Baal that Ahaz, Hezekiah's father, had erected, and now Hezekiah, Ahaz's son, is having them demolished and removed. So now you and I look very carefully at our own internal world and ask, what needs to be demolished and removed? If the symptoms are such that I lack unity with those that are brothers and sisters in Christ, what is it that I need to repent of, confess of, remove from my own inner sphere so that I can experience then not only the sense of true renewal but true reunification that is rooted not in personality but in true biblical Christianity? Well, in verse 14, this removal process occurs. It's all part of the revival strategy. But what verse 15 offers you and me is what I call the turning point. The turning point to the entire chapter and the entire story here now of this incredible revival unfolding before our very eyes. They slaughtered the Passover lamb on the 14th day of the second month. Why is that so significant? This was ancient memory. This had not been done generations for generations for generations. Now you can imagine as the lambs are being slaughtered once again, and all of this now is begging the question, why? What's the purpose of all this? Why, that's what Exodus 12 and 13, the story of the Passover, was meant to be able to challenge parents on. If you find your children in a situation where we're doing stuff in this church, we are a 24 7 day a week, 24 hour 7 day a week type ministry, and they're asking why. Pick up on what, what God said to Moses, and Moses in turn said to the people. In chapter 13, verse 14 of Exodus, just listen to this. In days to come when your son asks, what does this mean? Why do we serve communion? Why are those people getting baptized? Why do we do love loud? With a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed every firstborn in Egypt. And this will be a sign on your hand. In verse 16, a symbol on your forehead that the Lord brought us out of Egypt with his mighty hand. Passover. And Passover is meant to be able to say to them, 
These lambs that are being sacrificed serve as a need for a substitute. It would be representative of the fact there was a need for a lamb. It was representative of the fact there needed to be a chosen lamb. It was representative of the fact it had to be a sacrificial lamb. And then John the Baptist in John chapter 1 comes along and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And the final lamb is sacrificed. And you're set free. You know, when I was in college, not the pastorate was not on my mind. It wasn't on my radar. It would have shocked me if you told me I'm doing what I'm doing. But I love theology. And I loved the rich teachings of the Scriptures, particularly the book of Romans. And so one day in my senior year, I was getting ready to study for my medical college aptitude test. A friend of mine came along and said, Gary, you would love to read the writings of Donald Gray Bonhouse and Martin Lloyd-Jones. And somebody decided to put them all in my hands. Lloyd-Jones was a physician who became a pastor. Bonhaus was the great pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. Delved into their writings and was told an interesting story about Bonhaus of 10th Presbyterian Church. He loved, he loved to be able to have his entire family together for the holidays. One particular Christmas season, it was nighttime. Everybody has just gone to their rooms. Children, grandchildren, everybody are getting tucked in. It was starting to get quiet. You know what Bonhaus did? He went to the piano. He went to the piano and began to play a tune. Not that tune you hear right now. He began to play Silent Night. And as he played Silent Night, he continued to play Silent Night until he reached that last note, Sleep in Heavenly. And then it went silent. And he sat there until one of his sons his son shouted out, Dad, play the last note. Jesus played the last note. All the Passovers, all the lambs, everything continues to push forward generation by generation by generation. Everybody anticipating that Lamb of God who take away the sins of the world, who came along to play the last note. So now what you and I do for this culture that loves its music is to be able to draw their attention to the one who played the last note. So now, when the children are watching this Passover unfold before their very eyes in verse 15, I call it the turning point. Look for the turning point experiences in people's lives. And here you find in verse 15, they slaughtered the Passover lamb on the 14th day of the second month. Now with that in mind, I want to draw your attention then to what happens in verse 21 down through verse 27. 
Because you and I find now a third, a third distinctive that jumps out at us. The number three, during times of revival, God's people rejoice in the Lord. They return to the Lord, number one, one through twelve. They reunify before the Lord, verse 13 through 20. But thirdly, they rejoice in the Lord, verse 21 through 27. So the Israelites who were present, look for how many times words such as joy or rejoice now occur in these verses. The Israelites who were present in Jerusalem celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread for seven days with great rejoicing. While the Levites and priests sang to the Lord every day, accompanied by the Lord's instruments of praise. Hezekiah spoke encouragingly to all the Levites who showed good understanding of the service of the Lord. For the seven days they ate their assigned portion, offered fellowship offerings, praised the Lord, the God of their fathers. The whole assembly then agreed to celebrate the festival seven more days. So for another seven days they celebrated joyfully. Drop down to 28, 627. There was great joy in Jerusalem, for since the days of Solomon, don't miss that name. Where did 714? Where was it delivered and to whom? Solomon. There was great joy in Jerusalem, for since the days of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. The priests and the Levites stood to bless the people. God heard them. Can you imagine this today? For their prayer reached heaven, his holy dwelling place. Now, do something with me. There are four key words that stand out in these verses. Four. The first is found in verse 11. Look carefully. Nevertheless, some men of Asher, Manasseh, and Zebulun, what? Humbled themselves. First key word, humble. Verse 11. Look at verse 18. And again in verse 27. I'll just read 27. The priests and the Levites stood to bless the people, and God heard them for their what? Prayer reached heaven, his holy dwelling place. Something beginning to unfold here. Look at verse 19. Look carefully. Who sets his heart on what? Seeking God. Seek. Found there in verse 19. So you look then at verse 6 and verse 9, and five times that word shuv in the Hebrew, turn, return, appears. Turn, 6, 7, 8, 9. Tie this back now to what appears once again on the screen, which has served as our paradigm, our strategy for understanding what this is all about. During times of true revival, God's people rejoice in the Lord. Why? You're taken back to 714. And if my people who are called by my name will what? Humble themselves. Verse 11. Pray. 1827. Seek my face. Verse 19. Turn from their wicked ways. 6789. Five times shoe of the Hebrew word for turns utilized. 
Then will I hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. And what we are saying is that with these three significant distinctives, if we apply them to our own personal lives, return to the Lord, reunify before the Lord, rejoice in the Lord, we are making a powerful evangelistic statement to our society. Come back to Jesus. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. Let's stand together. And we're praising you, Father. We refuse to allow this to remain as ancient history. All truth is your truth. So the facts of the past become the lessons for today. So now, Father, if there's anybody who needs to return, so stir that heart now. They say, enough of this cul-de-sac. I want to get back to Jesus. For that one who has either been a promoter of or a participant in division, speak to that heart. It's time to reunify. As you called Judah to come back to her first love. And for those, Father, who are so sapped by life, may we find that we rejoice in the Lord because the joy of the Lord is our strength. We praise you then for these distinctives, and I pray that we leave here this morning as we go to the adult Bible fellowships and elsewhere. Embracing these truths, apply them to our lives, and making a difference in this culture for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.